Hello and welcome to the I Want to Know podcast. I am Josh Spector and I am your host. If you don't know who I am, I'm the creator of the For the Interested newsletter, which you can check out at fortheinterested.com. If you're new here, this podcast exists for a simple reason, to help creative entrepreneurs get their questions answered. Here's how it works. In each episode, a different guest comes on and asks me three questions. We have a 10-minute conversation about each of them, and that is it. No fluff, lots of actionable tips, no boring stories about what they did in kindergarten. We just get right to the good stuff. Although today's episode is going to be slightly different because this is going to be a flip the script episode. And what that means is instead of someone coming on and asking me the questions, I've brought on a special guest whose expertise I want to learn from and who I think you will find super helpful. And I will ask him the three questions. Today, my guest is Nate Cadillac. Nate is a designer helping non-designers make better design decisions for their brands and businesses with his company, Approachable Design. He writes a weekly newsletter, which is fantastic, by the way, I highly recommend it, called Make It Yours, leads design workshops, and works as a consultant. Over his career, he's worked with early stage startups to Fortune 500 companies, and recently led product and brand design at a startup to its mid-eight-figure acquisition in 2021. Also, I am a huge fan of Nate's work. I've not only featured it in my newsletter often, but I have also had him help me with the mess that is my design stuff, including redesigning our YouTube thumbnails, despite my weird obsession with them not necessarily featuring my face on everyone. So Nate is super helpful. Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you for doing this. Josh, so great to be here. I'm excited for this. Thank you. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. And I know it's, you know, it's interesting when we talked before, I'm someone who really actually really values and cares about design, despite not really having any of those skills. So, and I think there's a lot of people like me, certainly in my audience and lots of creative entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, all that kind of type where, you know, we're very creative people and we're good at creating things and we know what we want but we don't have any design skills. And then our designs do not match the quality of our work, maybe. And then I think a lot of times what happens is they wind up getting, you know, certainly in my own case, you wind up getting stuck of, do I hire a designer? Do I have the, but, you know, that creates another whole layer of complexities. Is there a way to sort of simplify this? Is there things that I can come up with, templates, that kind of stuff, where it's going to look good and going to look professional and be well-designed and reflect my brand? but not become a complete clusterfuck, which I think it come, becomes for a lot of people. Right. So I got a bunch of questions for you. Let's, let's jump into it. So I think where I want to start is a quick crash course in, in three specific elements of design for non-designers. And I want to talk about fonts, colors, and images. And so we'll take them one by one. And I'd love to have you give me kind of two or three golden rules that people can follow for each of these things to help them figure out how to best use them. Let's start with just really simple fonts. What should people know? What should they think about when they're trying to pick fonts for their brand, for their work, for all that kind of stuff? I'm glad you chose fonts first because if you can sort of wield typography, that's 95% of the way. It's sort of the the 80-20 of design. And I think choosing a great font is kind of a secret weapon in, in a way. And so I'm going to, I'm going to say the word font in this conversation when most designers might kind of scowl, but for the right. sake we're speaking to non-designers, I'm going to say font for Really the web is 95% text. You know, it really comes in handy if you can learn to, to use text and use fonts on your websites, landing pages, newsletters, everything else. So it's kind of the key, the secret key to design. 
I'll just start with saying fonts have inherent traits. And so if you're choosing a font, keep in mind that a serif font was designed hundreds of years ago. So they have this traditional kind of nature built into them. They're actually modeled after like the human brush stroke. And so if, if you look at like how the, the serif font has a little lip on it, it's really meant to mimic this natural organic feel. And so you kind of have all this built-in tradition into it. You know, sans serif fonts are a little bit more modern. They're geometric. And so when you're choosing a font, think about these traits as you pick one. So if you want to go a little bit more traditional, if you want something that looks a little bit luxurious, so like Prop and Gucci use very thick serif fonts, but it oozes luxury, it oozes this kind of like interesting dynamic between uh, luxury and essence and all of this other stuff. So think about these qualities that these fonts inherit. Uh, because they will come out and be shown forth in your brand and business. If you're coming across as more modern or you like this clean aesthetic look, then I would choose like a sans serif font. And so this is just kind of just some inherent qualities that these fonts have. If you're uh, wanting to go a little bit more casual, you might choose a handwritten. At the basic level, fonts have inherent qualities that either can work for you or against you. And I think one thing I want to point out with that, which hopefully and, and maybe to a lot of people seems obvious, but to a lot of people might not, all of these choices say something and express your brand. I think a lot of times when it comes to design, people that maybe aren't designers or don't have a lot of design expertise, they're just, that looks cool. Or they're like, I like the way that looks. And that's certainly valid and important. You should like the way it looks. But I think it's also helpful to or important to understand that all these choices you're making are also sending maybe unconscious signals to people, just like you said, right? Like the choice of a serif or sans serif font, regardless of whether or not you're like, oh, I think I like the way that looks cool. It is also conveying other messages to people. And that's true of everything that we're going to talk about, I assume. And I think understanding that doesn't mean that you can't, you can still just go with, oh, this is what I like and this feels right. But understanding that does convey something, right? Choosing a handwritten font says something about your brand and is going to have an impact on how people perceive you beyond just you thinking it looks cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we get into color a little bit, I tend to take an unconventional approach, but you're right that someone comes to your website, they're going to have a voice of their own, essentially. Yeah. And they're going to establish some assumptions and perceptions in people's minds, right? It's very similar to pricing. You can price high, you can price low, you can price whatever you want, but that price is going to influence, is a, is a reflection of your brand. People are going to make assumptions. Oh, it's only $5. They're going to assume that it's only worth so much. Oh, it's $5,000. I'm going to make assumptions about what that's worth. Now that might work for or against you, depending what you're doing. It's not necessarily that one is better than the other, but it is influencing things. Can you also, before we move on from fonts, can you also talk a little bit when we worked together and we started, so you helped me look at fonts and consider and find stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that exercise? I don't even remember. I think we went to a Google page where there's like a million fonts on there. But one of the things I thought was really interesting, can you talk a little bit about sort of looking at the, looking at fonts, like one letter in a really large size and sort of that kind of exercise? Because I thought that was really helpful and I hadn't seen it before. Yeah. So once you sort of determine, you know, what inherent qualities of a font you like, then the next step I generally take is uh, looking at these things really up close. So kind of on your hands and knees. So when I go to Google fonts and we did this exercise, I'm basically zooming that font size slider all the way to the right. And then we start looking at the individual letters 
Desire spent a lot of time creating these things. And it's really tough to understand the differences in fonts when you're looking at them all at 12 points. I tend to kind of increase that size and start to look at letters that we love, the letters of our name, the letters of our companies, maybe an ampersand. And we get to kind of like look at the characters, the details of that and fall in love with it. And part of falling in love with these choices means that we're making timeless design decisions. It's not that we're pulling inspiration from other websites, but we're actually looking at what appeals to us. And so that's really about choosing a font and finding one that we love. Along with that, I will say just the next step is choosing one that has six styles or six mm. weights or more. So the font that you had chosen initially had, I think, a couple, had maybe two weights, mm. so a regular and a bold weight. It doesn't give you a lot of flexibility. And so one thing that I try to recommend is in Google Fonts, you can actually bump up the, the style slider to six or more. And I would recommend doing that because then it gives you a lot of flexibility. Too many people feel like they need more fonts. I recommend choosing one font with six or more styles, and that will limit all of the design decisions that you have to make. I think that's a great tip. And when you say bump up the slider for people who are listening, basically you can filter which fonts it shows you. So you could say essentially like only show me fonts that have six different styles or only show me sans serif fonts or however you want to filter it which is also really helpful. And, you know, I'll say having gone through that exercise with you, which I had never done before and sort of increasing the size and looking at them, one of the things that I found really helpful was I think a lot of times when you're just looking at a million fonts, like everything sort of looks the same. Yes, some are very different, but you're like, oh, I don't, these seem, how am I going to choose? Like eight of these look very similar and whatever. But when you bump it up and you're looking at sort of an individual letter, all of a sudden you're like, oh, I see the difference between the way the J is with this font and this other font that generally looks similar. But now you start to notice those little things. And I found as someone going through the exercise, it made it much easier to sort of identify, oh, that's a cool, like all of a sudden they look different. Whereas before they, you know, they're a bunch of sans serif fonts, like they look kind of similar. So yeah, I thought that was really, really helpful. So let's move on to, let's move on to colors. So give us a couple of rules, suggestions about uh, choosing colors. Yeah. So this is sort of my kind of unconventional take on color. So color has a color theory or psychology, you know, based on it. I actually think that you should avoid that. So unless you're building an immersive experience, like a restaurant or a retail store where color is flooding you from all angles, I don't think you need to pay attention to reds mean colors make you hungry or warm or, you know, blues make you feel a little bit cooler. It's a little bit more of an e-commerce color. I think ignore all of that. A general rule when I choose colors is to, especially if it's for a personal brand or personal business, find a photo that you love. So you'll think of one photo that you've maybe you can remember from your childhood. Maybe it's in your, it's in your Lightroom collection, but find a photo that you love and take a really close look at it, squint at it, kind of blur the colors together and pick a color from that photo because that's a, a personal design decision. You're, that you're making right there. You're kind of going to the source of truth, this connective tissue that reminds you of what was in that moment. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a trip that you took, right? And you just kind of love this photo. Maybe it's the color green of a palm leaf or it's the, the ocean color. If you choose a single color, having one color gives you a ton of options. 
because now you can create and choose light and darker shades of that color. You don't really need to pick too many colors. You can just start with something that you love. I tend to kind of go to things that I've experienced, stories mm. I've experienced, and, and pull a color from there. Generally speaking, if you wanted to add it, an additional color, you might pick something without getting into the color wheels and everything. Mm -hmm. Pick if you chose like a, an ocean blue, you might choose something that's kind of similar in that range. Another like purple or something kind of like that sits next to it. But generally speaking, I like to choose an accent or a warmer color. So an opposite side of the wheel. So you have a blue or a green that's a cooler color. You could go choose like an orange or a yellow that's opposite. And it kind of balances out and warms things up a little bit. And the same goes for if you chose a warm color, you might have a cooler accent color. And so I tend to kind of work with contrast a lot in design, contrasting between fonts, contrasting between colors, between imagery. And so contrast is really kind of a, a key element of design decisions. How many, when you're sort of starting from scratch, and I like the advice to kind of, you know, hone in on one color and then sort of build from there. How many colors when someone's sort of thinking about their brand, like how many color, you know, should they like, okay, these are my two main colors. These are my four main colors. Like what, when they're kind of putting together a palette, how should they think about it? Usually I'll say that's no more than three, a really great starting point. I think when you're just starting out, most people will choose too many and then they have too many things to work with and they don't know how to yeah. incorporate them all. When I choose a primary color, I'll choose one and then I'll make a couple of variations of that. So I'll choose a if it's blue, I'll choose a lighter blue and a darker blue. And all of a sudden I have three that I can kind of work with now. Mm -hmm. They're all going to work together because they're all part of the same hue. And then if I choose another color, I'll do the same thing. I'll choose a, a lighter version and a darker version of that. You can choose, just choose a couple of colors and you'll have enough variation to work with. So you, for instance, you might have your primary blue color, but then the background of your website might be a really light blue, but it's still the same blue. And then you might use your headers as a dark blue or your mm. actions as a dark blue. So you really don't need more colors to expand what you're trying to do in, in, in the early stages of building a business. I'm going to ask this question. My guess is that it doesn't really matter, but maybe I'm wrong. Do you have any thoughts when it comes to sort of picking colors, personal brand versus brand, business brand, whatever, right? Is there any considerations or is it basically the same thing, right? Or if you're doing a personal brand, you might want to go this route with colors. And if you're doing a business brand, you might want to go this route or avoid this, or are they really kind of the same? I have this idea that founder-led businesses, when you can connect them, to personal decisions, personal stories, they have a better chance of standing out. And so mm -hmm. I, I tend to go personal with these decisions. So if you're building a personal brand, absolutely pick things that you love. Don't worry about necessarily your audience. Like if you're a lawyer or if you're starting a law firm, the traditional route might be to go for some purples and blues, really cool colors. But I think you have an opportunity to stand out based on the things that you love, not based on what everybody else is doing. Love him or hate him, Elon Musk, I think, is a really good differentiator. At the highest levels, he's designing cars that fit his taste, his filter. Mm -hmm. These electric cars look nothing like anything else. But when you look at cars in general, a lot of them just look the same. Yeah. So I think you can make personal design decisions at the highest levels. You have to have the confidence, you know, in your own taste. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other story. But I right. think it's really important to know that if you trust what you love, and you're building a company that's bigger than yourself, can still make founder-led design decisions. What do you think about, I've heard some people talk about sort of almost as a cheat code or like, a, I don't know anything about design. 
So I'm just going to go find some brand, maybe not in your space, in another space and go, you know what? They spent probably spent a lot of money figuring out what colors look good together or whatever. And I'm just going to use their colors. What do you think about that for someone that just sort of feels overwhelmed by it? Yeah, I, I tend to, I think this is a trap because I, mm-hmm. I believe you are basing your design decisions on someone else's design decision. So that other company likely went through an experiment or made these decisions because of whatever reason. You don't know what those mm-hmm. are. You are now copying their decisions for whatever reasons they made them. And they're not personal to you. And so this leads right. to a lot of design debt in terms of I get tired of my brand in six months or a year and I feel like I have to redo everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't exactly know why I chose these things. So when I bring on a designer, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to recreate everything anyways. So I think that there's a lot of debt accumulated kind of behind the scenes when you're doing this. And if you were to just spend the time to make simple design decisions and not too many of them based on things that you like, I think that will carry much further. You might still end up doing a redesign or a brand. But you're more likely to wind up happy with it because you feel more connected to it. So let's let's go to images. A couple of quick sort of tips or rules. And I know images is a broad category, photography, illustrations, whatever, but... Any thoughts on things people should know about how to deal with images? It kind of used to be the case that, you know, if you needed an image, you go and, and search stock, iStock photo or some other mm-hmm. stock photography website. Unsplash did a great job at bringing quality to photography. I think that it's easy to find, if you use one of these free services, it's easy to find the fact, you know, that, that the fact that other people are using the same photography. I really tend to think about using your own photography. If you need a picture of something, go just take one. And then that's kind of Mm -hmm. like unique to you. Using AI in mid-journey now is a really great resource to to just prompt it for something that you might need. And then using that as background imagery or something else. That's just, I think, where I would go today versus Mm -hmm. trying to find something online otherwise. Another thing that you can do is instead of just looking at photography as sort of a rectangle image, you can simply use masks and Canva and Figma allow you to kind of mask images in a unique way. Maybe it's, maybe your brand element uses a star. Maybe like your logo has a star in it and you want to mask your images with that same star. Even if the image were a little bit familiar or someone else is using it, that mask kind of gives it its own identity and own uniqueness. And so you can use masks in a way to crop things in, in kind of like unique ways. So yeah, images are tough. When I think about images from a personal brand standpoint or uh, something where you're, it's a founder-led business, I would go and have photography done. Spend the 500 bucks, have a professional series done for you. And then you're going to have a slew of images that you know someone shot and you can use for the next few years. Without going down the whole AI rabbit hole, because that's a, probably a whole other thing, but any quick tips for people that are using mid-journey prompts or like, how do you think about, you know, let's, let's just come up with a sort of specific example here. Let's say that I wanted some sort of image of a person giving a presentation in a business meeting. How would you go about sort of any tips for sort of that prompt to get images that are going to be helpful or good? It's, that's a great example because I thought you were going to go with maybe like an idea, but it's really, that's the first step is getting clear about what you want the image to represent. And so mm-hmm. don't go in, you know, kind of giving an abstract concept, but you really need to. Right. Don't, don't go in and say, give me an image for a business blog post, yeah, right? Like, Descri- right? Describe an actual action of what basically yeah. paint the pic, quote unquote, paint the picture of what you want the image to be. Yep. And so then from there, I would get even more detailed and say, okay, who is my audience? Do I want this presentation 
inside? Do I want it on a stage? Do I want it in front of a small team meeting? I would think about the characteristics of who mm-hmm. your audience is, how you're serving them, how you might show up in the real world and use those specific ideas and incorporate them into your prompt. And so you can get a, a much better contextual image that feels a little bit less stock photography like, you know, mm-hmm. even describing the people that are in the presentation can be helpful. Yeah, I was going to say there's like a probably a huge difference between a presentation to young advertising executives versus a presentation to old bankers or, or whatever, right? That's going to be a very different vibe. Cool. So I know I've already asked you like 10 questions. So let's get to my second question for you. <laughs> I want to talk about YouTube thumbnails, which I know for anyone that does anything on YouTube is like a big thing and, and difficult to figure out. If someone's starting from scratch, let's say with a new YouTube channel and they need to figure out, okay, what are my thumbnails going to look like? Give them a quick sort of step-by-step plan or some thoughts on how they should get started and approach figuring out like, what do they want their thumbnails to look like in general? So the first thing that people will probably do is do a little research. I actually think YouTube might be a part of that research, but I think great design happens outside of YouTube. There's so much bad design on YouTube. And then you're just going to yeah. be kind of chasing like what clicks and what impressions, you know, but there's just so many variables in that. So I think that if you look at movie studios, so streaming services like Hulu, Netflix, mm-hmm. these studios have spent billions of dollars on attracting your eyeballs <laughs> and they are getting, yeah. trying to get you to click between $100 million movie versus another $100 million movie. They have skin in the game. And so they have designers executing at the highest levels. And they really, if you look at an Apple TV thumbnail, it's really well executed. So you have, you basically have a couple of elements. You have a, you have an image, you have some text and you have some background imagery. So really three elements and they are placing them in a really like natural, organic, consistent way. And so if you want to go look at great design, I would just go to Hulu, Netflix, and any of those other services, get inspiration from those first. And then really the second step would just be to gather everything that you have kind of into one spot. So the title, if you're going to use text, no more than four words really in a thumbnail, unless it's someone like you, Josh, who is really topography focused and there's really no other mm-hmm. elements, you can kind of get away with that because that's, you're really kind of playing into the copywriting of a title and really mm-hmm. trying to like hook people using that angle uh, versus an image. And so I think that's sort of the exception of the rule. But really gather all of your assets, so icons, text, images of guests or yourself, and really just kind of build out your little YouTube design kit so you can have everything at the ready. The third thing I I generally do is make everything stackable. So I talk a lot about layers and how you can create depth using layers. Layers in design is kind of like a deck of cards. So you imagine a deck of cards, the topmost layer covers everything beneath it. The bottommost layer is covered by everything above it. What you can do is remove the backgrounds of all of your images. So if you have a guest and you take a screen grab of a conversation, remove the background going to remove.bg. It does a really great job of this. It's free for low res images, which is great for YouTube thumbnails. Getting kind of your assets in order, fonts, colors, those removed images. And then now you can stack things in clever ways. Hide text behind a guest, uh, make it feel like there's a sense of depth. And so you mm-hmm. take the two-dimensional frame and really create an interesting and dynamic uh, three-dimensional sort of 
surface area. The fourth thing I would say is um, using the rule of thirds to place things in a natural order. The rule of thirds exists essentially because our eyes are drawn to really nicely placed elements on a screen. And what's happening is our eyes want to be guided. Like great copywriting where you write the headline, the whole intent of that headline is to get you to read the next line. In design, it's the same thing. We want our eye to go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and to bounce around it and be, you know, have our eyeballs held, pushed around the screen. We don't want to be stuck in one spot for too long. And so the rule of thirds is a really great kind of strategy to place all of your elements correctly. And for people don't know, can you, who don't know, can you just explain the rule of thirds, like where those lines are? And yeah. If you have a camera, if you have a phone, you have the camera app and there's usually an option called grid and grid is essentially the rule of thirds. This is, it divides up the, uh, the surface area. So if you're looking at your phone, divides up the, the image area into nine equal parts, three rows, three columns. Basically you want to place the focal points of your, so let's say you have a person who you interviewed, you want to place their eyes on one of the sweet spots. So the sweet spots are, there's four sweet spots that intersect those rows and columns. Our eyes are naturally drawn to it. It's a little off center, creates a really interesting composition. It can be used to create drama or intrigue. And so use the rule of thirds, practice it using your phone and start creating, basically take pictures and just place like the object on one of those four sweet spots and you'll create a much more compelling image than, yeah. than you would have. Yeah, I want to drill in on a couple of things that you said. So first of all, I love the I love the advice of studying, you know, movie and streaming art because you're right. Not only have they spent tons of money and time and research and professionals designing those things, they've also tested them over and over again. And, you know, they know what's working and not. And I think the biggest thing with that 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 is interesting is whereas not all that long ago, all that art was designed, you know, most of it was posters and commercials and ads and trying to get people to go to the theater. Now, because these platforms, they're actually designed for clicks. I think actually going on to these apps, and if you think about it, it's very, it's not YouTube, but it's very similar to a YouTube grid where there's just a bunch of these little thumbnails and like they're designing for that. And that artwork is very different than the artwork you might have seen in an ad in a newspaper or a poster in a movie theater somewhere, whatever, because it's serving a different purpose. But that purpose very much aligns with what you're trying to do on YouTube. So I think that's a great tip. The other thing I love to have you talk about that, I, that I've heard you talk about before is the idea that when you're designing a thumbnail, sort of the hierarchy of what you're putting in it, that there needs to be like one clear, this is the thing I want them to see first. Then I, you know, I want them to see this image and then I want them to see the copy and then I want them to see the background or whatever. Can you just talk a little bit about that sort of hierarchy? I think about this in almost any project that I'm doing, not just thumbnails, but really want a clear visual hierarchy or visual priority. Think of if you're talking about a thumbnail and you have four elements, you have an image, text, a background, layer, color, and then maybe you have a foreground element like a microphone. You have four things to work with. If you put them on a page, one, two, three, four, something needs to come first. Not every element can be in that number one spot. Everything screams for attention. No one gets attention, right? So really it's about being clear in your mind. What do I want people to look at first, second, third, fourth? And the way to kind of create that contrast between those elements are by scaling in size. So maybe the first one, for me to be drawn to it, you need to kind of make it a little bit larger than everything else. And there's a running joke in design where it's make the logo bigger. And the reason why designers roll their eyes at this is because the logo is not the first thing you really want someone to kind of be drawn to. And mm -hmm. so the fact of making it larger means that 
it's taking attention away from something else. It's usually just a, an entrepreneur or a business owner who just wants that logo bigger. So mm. in your designs, like a thumbnail design, just be cognizant of what you want the audience to see first, second, third, fourth, and make sure that the fourth element is not trying to scream for more attention than the first element. So you could reduce the contrast. You could make sure that maybe the opacity is kind of blended it in the background a little bit more. Maybe the background element is the fourth spot. And so you blur out the background so it's not competing for attention with everything else. Little tricks like that to kind of create this visual hierarchy will really go along. And I think I would also add to that, and I don't remember if I heard this from you or I know I've heard it from a lot of different people, especially in, when it comes to YouTube thumbnails and but design in general, being aware that each of those different elements in theory on their own should be telling a piece of the story. So like a lot of times you'll see from a copy perspective where they're like, don't put the same copy in your headline in your thumbnail. Those are two different opportunities to sort of convey, yes, they may be related messages, but two different messages. And I think that also can apply to images. Your image standalone without anything else, in theory, should be telling some sort of story. You talked about the, the addition of a microphone suggests that it's an interview versus just a headshot or whatever. Can you use an image that's making one selling point, then your copy's making another selling point, then your background or whatever else is sort of saying something else so that they're, it's funny, like you talk about layering, but that you're actually layering the messaging in addition to layering the design as opposed to all four of these elements are just saying the same thing and it's repetitive and they're not really adding to it. I think the peak of design in, in a thumbnail is to have an image that's so compelling that doesn't use any text. And I think mm -hmm. Mr. Beast does this well, but he has a huge budget to spend on this and yeah. be test. But really it's, okay, if I, if I could create an image that, that conveyed what's happening in the, the video itself without any words, that's I think what we're trying to achieve can't always do that. So we have to rely on a few more elements. And so that's kind of why we're layering things to tell that story a little bit more clearly because we don't have the, the millions of dollars to spend on our thumbnails. It's really kind of like our bag of tricks, you know? And by the way, like along those lines, if an element is not adding to it, again, I'm a very minimalist sort of simple approach to everything. But if it's not adding to it, then maybe it shouldn't even be there. I'm not currently using images or my headshot or anything on my YouTube thumbnails. I'm not, by no means am I saying that's the necessarily the right way or the best way to do it. It probably isn't, to be perfectly honest. But I looked at it and I was like slapping my image on there, just basically a headshot. Most people don't have any idea who, like what's, this isn't adding anything to it. So I removed it and we went with this very simplistic sort of minimal text only design, which if nothing else, it stands out because everyone else has the headshot of themselves on there making some wacky YouTube face. I think that looking at it and going, okay, if this element isn't adding anything to it, maybe I should just remove it or figure out a way like, yes, I could have gone the other route and gone. I'm going to do photo shoots for every one of these thumbnails and I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And maybe it's not going to be me, but I'm going to go shoot original photography. And, you know, I don't know what exciting photography I'm going to get about an art, a video about newsletters, but, you know, whatever. But so I think that was, again, part of my decision to, to not do that. And I think understanding that, like, every element you're going to use, like, there should be a reason you're using it and a theoretical value or something it's adding to it. And if it's not, then maybe just remove it. No, I think it's such a great point. And one thing I just want to add is your decision to do that is really interesting because when I think about Josh Spector and your brand, it's kind of this no bullshit, 
you have this, you're really trying to take yourself out of the picture a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. And you're really trying to understand like, what does the audience really want? You know, they don't, it's not that they want me necessarily, but they want some actionable item to help them in their business. And you always kind of put that first. And so I think you're right that it's, you're simplifying it to a point, but it also really plays into your brand value, which I think mm-hmm. is important. I appreciate that. I do think that's why it resonates with me. And I think also another one, you know, we were talking about this from a design perspective earlier, but I talk about it all the time. One of my core beliefs is you don't stand out by fitting in. So everything I do, I'm always trying to do a little different. My newsletter is one paragraph. This podcast is typically people coming on and interviewing me, not me interviewing them. It's only three questions. It's we don't do this sort of backstory. Tell me how you became whatever you are. You know, so with that in mind, it was interesting. You know, I was thinking about YouTube thumbnails and you see all the best practices and whatever, and you look at what everyone's doing. I'm like, they all look the same. And it just didn't feel. And by the way, like there's a reason for that. And I could have gone that route and it might even perform better. Why should my thumbnails look like everyone else's when everything else I do is specifically designed to be a little different than what everyone else does? So you're right. It very much is an extension and alignment with my brand, even if maybe I don't get as many clicks as I might if I did it the other way. But there's a trade-off there because, you know, it's sort of representative, hopefully. And I think at a base level, I feel good about it. Like, I love the fonts we chose and the, like, I, they look really good. It feels much better. So that, let's get to my... Real quick, like that is the, yeah. the really undervalued part of all of this is that you're making decisions that you love. If you were uncomfortable putting yourself or your face on there every time, or you kind of got that little cringe moment, it's not worth it to have those feelings every time you're public, Yeah, you know? I certainly thought about it when you see like all the stuff of, oh, set up a camera and make a bunch of faces and point here and all this. And I'm like, but that's just, that's not, I can do that, but that's not really me and my brand. Like, I'm not going to be on YouTube going like, oh. you know, like I know someone's going to screenshot that and put it in a thing, but. And it'll probably become my most clicked video ever. But yeah, no, I'm not doing that. So let's get to my last question for you. Obviously, we're talking a lot about sort of how to do this stuff yourself or at least sort of guide people. But there are definitely going to be people that are like, I just I'm just going to hire someone to to help to do all this for me and and figure it out. So I want to give some advice to to them and, and talk about hiring someone to help you with design. So what are three questions that you would recommend someone ask a designer to figure out if they're going to be a good fit for what they need? So one great first question would be, have you done this type of work before? And can you provide me an example? I think having contextual examples for the thing that you're trying to do is a great filter because you might have to sift through a lot of portfolios looking at websites when all you want are thumbnails or vice versa. Make sure you find someone who's done the thing before. Not all designers are created equal. We have not worked on every single project under the sun, but finding someone with that experience is really helpful to, to kind of filter out. What... Another thing would be to pick apart. If, so if they send you a project, pick it apart a little bit. So look at one or two of their projects and just ask them about their process. You know, ask them about why they chose certain. You don't even need to be a designer to ask these questions, but just yeah. let them talk about it a little bit. That will help you kind of understand like their enthusiasm, what their process is. So could you tell me about your process of choosing colors and creating the logo for this project? I would expect to hear a little bit about maybe where things went wrong, you know, how they kind of, you know, kind of pivoted, how they brought it to a successful ending. 
So they can kind of talk you through that process. It gives you a little bit more confidence that they know what they're talking about. And you're not just looking at pretty pictures. The third thing I would think of is this is a little bit unconventional, not related directly to their work, but what are some of your favorite brands and who seems to be crushing it and why? So mm. this will help you understand their level of excitement around design in general, kind of understand their, their knowledge of the landscape. So a red flag would be to, if someone doesn't, can't provide an example, probably not really immersed in like the field of design. Like they just mm. might not have that like enjoyment that you're looking for. I think this, these long periods of silence, you know, I think would be something to just be wary of. If someone asked me this question, you know, I might just immediately jump to like, oh, I love what Peloton is doing with their software, their UI and their hardware. Like I would mm -hmm. probably get really excited about talking about this and kind of go into all of these details about the typography and the fonts and everything. You kind of want someone who's really energized to really work on something for you. And so these are some of the intangibles you can look for in terms of enthusiasm, whether they've done this work before and really if you gel with them, you know, I think you want to be able to know that you can ask them a question. They're not going to feel like, oh, this guy's, you know, wasting my time. I don't want to get back to them right away. You just really want to like kind of peel the layer. It's so funny. I love that. I love that you said that last part because it reminds me of, there was a job interview question that I used to always ask when I was hiring people, regardless of position. And I would always recommend other people ask. And it's funny because a while ago I had referenced it on Twitter, I think, and, or maybe even in my newsletter. And I actually got some pushback from people, which I thought was interesting. I'll talk about in a second, but it's very similar. Like I, I always thought it was helpful to ask people like, who do you follow? Who are you learning from? That kind of thing, which is very similar to your, what brands do you admire? It almost didn't matter what they said, but what mattered was that they had an answer. Oh, I love following X, Y, and Z. I think it's really interesting what they're doing on social. It doesn't even just have to be social, but they're like, oh, you know, I just read this book from so-and-so about whatever. And this is applicable for sort of any job. But if they didn't really have an answer, it didn't have to just be social media, but if they didn't really have an answer, they sort of struggled. To me, it was a sign that both of their enthusiasm and maybe passion for it, but also they're not really trying to learn. They're not really sort of out there because I just think that on some level you have to, whether it's just as simple as inspiration or whether you're actually learning stuff or whatever, not being able to answer that I think is a really bad sign. And it was interesting when I mentioned that some of the pushback that I got from people, not that I was interviewing, but when I mentioned this sort of technique was like, oh, I think that's a terrible question because I don't really use social media. Okay. But so who do you learn from? Do you read books? Do you watch TV? Do you watch documentary? What are you exposed to? And it was interesting because I think and this is a total guess, but I think like the people that it struck a nerve with who didn't like the question, my guess is they're not really learning or consuming anything. Because I understand you don't use social media, but that doesn't mean that you're like, are you taking a class? Do you have a mentor or somebody like a former boss? If you can't name anyone that you're sort of admiring their work or learning from or interested in. I just think it's a, like to you, like you said, it's a red flag and I think it's a really bad sign. I think one small thing too, is that it kind of lets, if they can name something, kind of lets you know that they're not, they're willing to celebrate other people's design yeah. that they have not created. And so mm -hmm. kind of get to your point about learning and, and sharing what you learn. Like, I think that is a quality that we look for when we work with people, but having that 
ability to recognize and to celebrate it and say, yeah, I wasn't a part of that, but I just love what they did. Like that just speaks yeah. volumes to just knowing that they're kind of like seeking out different things they're trying to build and their knowledge base and everything else. So, and, and depending what they say and, and what you know, it, can, it also can tell you something about their taste and their influences. And, you know, if someone's, oh, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with Seth Godin. It's interesting. I'm a big Seth Godin fan. I've never met anyone who was a Seth Godin fan that I didn't click with and didn't enjoy. That's like the ultimate. That's an easy filter. And on the flip side, I'm not a crypto guy. What I've never met anybody that was like way into crypto. It's probably not necessary. Crypto, Web3, when NFTs were, when like all of that. Is, I, I don't, it, not even that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, maybe there is. If, you, if I'm going to meet two people and one person's, I love Seth Godin stuff. I read his blog every day. And the other person's, oh, my favorite newsletter is getrichquickcryptonft.com. You know, one's probably going to be a better fit for my stuff than the other. So let me ask you, okay, so those are all good questions. Once you hire someone, so you're like, okay, I found the person, they're great, and we're going to start working together. Any tips for how to communicate with them, work with them? Obviously, it's different. Every relationship is different and every designer is different. But anything in general, both from a designer perspective, maybe of how I love when clients approach it like this. And the other way of, you know, the way to make this relationship work is to do this or not do this, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So from a designer perspective, what I love is clients that know that they're hiring an expert, you know, and they trust that the years that you've spent learning, just like I would expect from you from a marketing perspective and trust what you have to say. There's that mm -hmm. level of trust and respect that I think goes a long way in terms of determining how the, the output of the project, the quality of the output, if there's a lot of hey, I just showed my girlfriend or I showed my, you know, wife's, some family member design and they gave feedback. Like that just doesn't, it kind of speaks to the amateurish level of how you perceive your business in a way. Yeah. That's not your customer. Just kind of understanding that. From the client side, I would say that you're dealing with creative people who tend to kind of work odd hours in general. And so what I would want is kind of a set schedule. Designers love that. And so if mm -hmm. you have kind of like mapped out what the project timeline is going to be, kind of hold that designer accountable to, kind of, okay, I'm meeting with you next Thursday. Like I expect this presentation or I expect whatever that is, having those kind of guards in place, I think will help project go along uh, more fruitfully when you have sort of like weekly meetings or whatever the project yeah. is built in. And I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that when you hire a designer, you're not necessarily responsible. The designer is not expecting you to come in and go, I know exactly what I want. That's part of, you're partially hiring them to help you figure out what it things should look like and whatever. But I do think that doesn't let you off the hook of you need to be clear about the non-design pieces of it in order to help the designer. Like I'm, I would imagine that you get into cases where you're like, okay, who's the audience for these widgets you're gonna sell? And the guy's like, I don't know, it's kind of everyone, it's kind of whatever. I think you are, as the client, you are responsible for having some level of vision and some decisiveness about this is what I want. So that if the designer goes, are you viewing this as a luxury brand or a discount brand? And you go, I, I don't know, it's kind of a little bowl. Like it's what I like, that kind of stuff, that lack of clarity. And this is true in any sort of client, again, not just design, but it's true with 
marketing or any sort of client relationship, whatever expert you hire in anything, if you are not able to sort of convey what you're actually trying to do and trying to accomplish, it's unlikely you're going to get it. You're, you're kind of setting them up to, to fail. And, and have you found that? I, I assume that maybe they don't know or maybe they think they know, but there's a, you get into it and you're like, there's a lot of confusion on their end about what they're even trying to accomplish here or who they're trying to reach. It's a great point. I think I've definitely run into that before. I think good designers who are experienced to understand design should be an investment, not an expense, will probably mm -hmm. ask those questions and expect you to answer them and yeah. hold you to it. But you're right. It, you know, it will affect the output. And the output meaning, is it going to grow your business? Maybe not. If your design is muddled and it doesn't really appeal to anybody, that that is a reality and then might feel like you wasted your money. But I think good designers will probably prompt you and, and try to pull that out of you or send them your way to do a clarity call. <laughs> Right, exactly. It seems ridiculous, but I think there's a lot of people that are in this situation where they're like, I'm starting this new business. Maybe I haven't even fully figured out exactly what it's going to be. I need a logo. The designer's cool. What are we thinking? And you're like, okay, we sell widgets. And you're like, okay, what do you want? The you know, I don't know. I just want a cool logo. That's not really helpful. For it. I want something that looks professional. Okay. You know, what does that mean? But anyway, hopefully this episode, thank you. You have shared a ton of great tips and I am sure people will find it super helpful. Let them know where they can go to get more of your stuff, get your newsletter and all your hire you and all that other good stuff. Yeah. You can go to approachabledesign.co. There's a newsletter button on the top that you can click and that will take you to my weekly newsletter. And you can also find me on Twitter under my last name, which is K-A-D-L-A-C. Awesome. My stuff, my newsletter for the interested.com slash subscribe. My skill sessions, which I actually don't have a design one. So I'll refer you to Nate to learn from all his workshops and stuff he comes up with. But everything short of design, you can learn in my skill sessions, how to grow your audience, business, get clients, create products, all kinds of stuff. I'm on Twitter also at Jay Spector. If you would like to come on this podcast and ask me three questions, hit, it's a way to basically get free consulting from me. Go to joshspector.com slash questions and submit them. Nate, thank you. This was awesome. Thanks everybody for watching and listening. If you're watching on YouTube, you clicked one of those thumbnails that Nate helped me figure out how to design. So that's proof that it works. And if you're not watching on YouTube, then that means you didn't click one of those thumbnails and I should have used a photo of me making the YouTube face. Anyway, thanks everybody. I will see you next week.